Welcome to Compositional. Uh, today, um, I'm here. I'm Richard Eisenberg, um, researcher at Twig and tinkerer in types in Haskell. Um, and I am here today with Simon Peyton Jones, uh, who is one of the creators of the Haskell language and a major driving force behind it, uh, sort of chief architect of, of GHC, the main compiler behind Haskell. So welcome, Simon. Hi, Richard. It's nice to be here. Um, and and so uh, right now, um, uh, Simon has posted publicly that his his time at Microsoft is coming to a close. And so we wanted to take this opportunity to talk to him about that time and about sort of all that he's accomplished while working for Microsoft and sort of these, these this past little while and, uh, and to just hear more about that. Um, before we get into the Microsoft uh, period, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit, um, actually, sort of if there's any fun insider story of the beginning of Haskell. Um, I, I, I've certainly read a little bit about this here and there, but I don't think I've ever heard it told from someone in the room. So how did how did all of this come about? Oh, well, it came about because there was a, a bunch of people who were working on lazy functional programming. Laziness was the, the rallying cry here. Um, and uh, after a bit, there was um, we became aware that it was silly for us to all design our own languages um there were because we, we because they were all mainly the same language right <laughs> except that the implementations differed quite a bit um so we thought maybe we could just get together and design a common uh, just a common syntax you know a common surface syntax that we could then all all, all share programs of it seemed like a very modest and uh, eminently achievable endeavor you know something would take you take us about 20 minutes um and so we we tended to meet at conferences like uh, lisp and functional programming which was um occurred every two years and functional programming and computer architecture which occurred on the other the alternate years um so um and so it was at one of these conferences that we physically got together in a room and said okay let's do this and then and then of course that grew from there um and so so where where were you at this at this point this was before microsoft right oh well before microsoft yes in fact even before glasgow i think this sort of kicked off while i was still at ucl university college london um, which was my first academic job. I was a lecturer there, or maybe by then senior lecturer. Um, and uh, by then, for, for me, at that stage in my research career, conferences were a major thing. The, uh, they were pretty much always in the United States, um, LFP and FPCA. Um, and I would, uh, I would go to the conference, but I would arrange a sort of three-week tour of North America um, at the same time. I would write to all these, um, you know, demigods of functional programming, you know, David Wise and Arvind and, and so forth, and say, could I, could I come and visit you for two or three days? And they all very graciously allowed me to come and visit the lab and maybe give a talk and hang out with them. So I did a sort of a little tour of uh, North America um, pretty much every year, actually. It was very, very important to me, and it was that that was, and that was around the time all this was happening. Um, so, and so I was at UCL at the time. Then, about in 1990, I transitioned to Glasgow. But by then, I think Haskell was a thing. But I remember physically holding meetings at Glasgow University. So that I, I find that very interesting that the 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 meetings were were in North America. Right now, I feel like. Europe is the is the sort of the 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 center of 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 interest for functional programming. I always feel sort of far flung a little bit. Oh well, no, that so there was um, the MIT, MIT was huge. Um, that sort of Arvin's group was doing all this work on the data their data flow machine called Monsoon, um, and they were just founting out papers, and this all all sort of grew out of uh, Lambda the Ultimate Go-To and Lambda, Lambda the Ultimate Imperative Steele and Sussman's papers um, were terribly inspirational at the time. 
Um, John Backus's work on FP was also very inspirational at the time. Um, Paul Hudak was at Yale. Uh, he was a very, um, he was sort of similar um, vintage to me, but being enormously productive um, at that time. David Wise and um, uh, Dan Friedman were at Indiana. Uh, so that was a sort of hotbed of that's where functional programming was being born. So I think uh, then in the in Europe, it was mainly it was kind of David Turner was an inspirational um, source at that time. And Clean was getting going. Uh, so Venus Plasmeyer and his colleagues were, were developing Clean. That was a, a big thing. And um, the Lazy ML compiler at Chalmers was also big. So Thomas Jonsson and Leonard Augustson and their colleagues. Um, so I think it was, um, but the conferences, you know, the ACM conferences, Lisbon Functional Programming, I think at that stage, FPCA wasn't an ACM conference. They were, I think, not, they were not invariably in Europe. I think I remember an FPCA in Nice, but it was, it seemed to be quite often in America. Interesting. Um, okay. So then in 1990, you said you, you got to Glasgow and then what's the route from there? What sort of what, describe the period between that and, and when you joined Microsoft. Oh, Glasgow was an amazing time because they, they uh, um, uh, universities often like to say we're making a strategic investment in X and they hope that X is going to catch fire and often it doesn't. But on this occasion, Glasgow decided to make a strategic investment in their computer science department. They um, recruited Malcolm Atkinson and Keith Van Weisbergen to run it and he, they in turn recruited um, uh, John Hughes and Phil Wadler um, and in due course me and that led to the formation of the functional programming group in the computer science department that in that decade was enormously fertile and productive. You know, you will know John Lorchbury and Andy Gill and um, Alistair Reed and Simon Marlowe. They all, all came out of this group. It was a fantastically um, productive and exciting time at Glasgow. Um, and it was the, uh, that was where, you know, the first, the first versions of the GHC were written. Glasgow was just a lot of fun. We even, the functional programming group was, would go away for a sort of multi-day um, uh, conference, sort of internal conference to obscure Scottish crofts, you know, in, in Ullapool because they were incredibly cheap or on the Isle of Rothsay. But it was, they were very good bonding experiences, these long journeys to distant parts of the Scotland, Scottish Highlands. That does sound like great fun. Um, and then, and then I know there was a there was a stint in Oregon. Is that right? Oh yes. So nineteen around 19- that time, or was that was that quite a bit later? No, no, no. It was around that time. So nineteen ninety seven, I uh, went to spend a whole year um, at the Oregon Graduate Institute in the University of Oregon with um, um, in with you know with John Lorchbury and Jim Hook, and was the OGI at that time was a, another enormously fertile center of um, functional programming. Uh, tons of things were coming out of OGI. It was all very exciting. So it was a lovely group to spend um, spend time with. Um, and uh, I remember getting um, email from somebody around that time who said, um, I've got this problem MSc student I wonder if you could help with. So my heart sank. Um, and then I read a bit further and he said, the problem is he's just too bright. <laughs> I can't keep him occupied. And he was Dan Lyon. So uh, in the end, I said, <laughs> I said, oh, but I'm going on sabbatical this year. But <laughs> then I said to OGI and Jim Hook, look, could I, could I bring an MSc student with me? And they said, oh, yes, that would be fine too. And so Dan came too. And Dan, since has you know, become a force of nature in functional programming as well. So it was very, it was just a brilliant year, brilliant year. Then I came back and spent one more year in Glasgow before um, getting a job with Microsoft Research in Cambridge. 
So, so how did that come about? Was was Microsoft quite new at that point? Or Microsoft Research Cambridge, at least, was quite new, I think. Or... Oh, totally new. Yes, yes. So it was just being founded. I guess it was probably founded 1997 or thereabouts. Um, and uh, I sort of knew of its existence. Um, and then Dorothy, to whom I'm very happily married, said to me, well, uh, you know, do you think we can move to England? You know, I can get a job there because she's a priest in the Anglican Church. And there's just more um, jobs for Anglican clergy in England than there are in Scotland. So um, so she said, we can go wherever you like, but um, but let it be England. So so I phoned up Roger Needham, who was then running the lab, um, and said, would you like to uh, give me a job? And he said, oh, very well. <laughs> or the, the, an interview was involved, um, but... Uh, um, it was a. Uh, um, it was all concluded fairly quickly and delightfully. So it's quite exciting to be joining the lab at this very early stage in its in its existence, in which you know there were only about three or four researchers in the whole thing. It was Andy Gordon and Chris Bishop and me and a um, you know handful of others. And and what was your sort of remit when you got there? What was what was the structure? What what did they want out of that research group? Oh well, the um, Microsoft Research's mission at that time was to um, push forward the boundaries of knowledge and to be a reservoir of expertise and ideas for Microsoft, the company. So in practice, that worked out at um, being our, as, as being, you could do more or less whatever you liked. It was just amazing. Um, so um, in particular, you know, I was pretty upfront about it. I said, I would, I really want to work to, to continue to work on Haskell and GHC and functional programming, um, which is not something that Microsoft was strategically making an investment in. They were making an investment in programming languages generally and trying to assemble a world, world-class programming languages group. And they thought, um, and so I came with this, as it were, um, research program that I was already engaged in. And they, they said, oh, fine, let's do that. Um, and in fact, Simon Marlow came with me at the same time. He he um, made the transfer alongside me. That was a very important part of being want to, wanting to make the move because GHC had already, by that stage, got to the point where it was too big for one person to run. Sure. And then while you were at Microsoft, sort of were there, I mean, I know the, the, the research group grew. I mean, at, at, at first you described this, this quite small lab. Where, where were you located? We, we used to, I, the first time I saw Microsoft Research, you were right across the street from, from the Cambridge Computer Lab. But I think that was even before any of those buildings were built. Yeah, before that, we were in, we were in an office in the center of Cambridge, which I barely knew existed. You know, it's, it's right above the, uh, you would know it as Petty Curry. And right over Petty Curry, which is a shopping center right in the center of Cambridge, is a rather nice, um, you know, moderate-sized office suite, um, which we occupied. So you just sort of go in through a, a, a not very well-marked door um, next to a shop, and there you were at MSR. And, and so, so as you grew, how did, how did that evolve? I mean, I, I have to imagine that, that over your time there, there were sort of several phases, say, of, of, of different, different activities. I mean, at one point, F-sharp, did F-sharp come out of that lab? Oh, yes. Yes, it certainly did. Yes. So the you know, the programming languages grew, um, you know, really well. We had uh, Don Syme and Nick Benton and Andrew Kennedy, um, Josh Burdeen, um, Byron Cook at a later stage. Um, so it was really very um, – and Luca Cardelli. So Luca Cardelli was, you know, employee number one on the programming languages group. In fact, I would think the reason that we had a programming languages group is because Roger decided to hire, you know, Luca Cardelli. And therefore, by definition, they had a programming languages group. Luca then subsequently reinvented himself as a, a systems biologist applying programming languages ideas to that. But that was a little later. Uh, so then Don Syme was indeed – um, one of the people in this group, and at, at, 
we at that stage .NET was evolving, um, which is uh, uh, the .NET runtime, which so Microsoft was building this virtual machine that they wanted to run lots of languages on top of, um, rather as uh, you know happens for the JVM, and um, people at MSR got very involved in that, particularly Andrew Kennedy and Don Syme, and were deeply involved in the uh, the fact that. Um, .NET has generics, that is parametric polymorphism, built it at a very deep level. Um, so by deep level, I mean that uh, uh, often parametric polymorphism is restricted to saying you have um, uh, you've got one blob of code that implements a polymorphic function. But if you want your polymorphism to range not over over things that are represented by a pointer, but by over, um, you want the same polymorphic function to apply to um, a list of unboxed integers or a list of unboxed double position floats or things of varying representation, then you need multiple clones or copies of the code specialized for those different representations. So, um, and of course, the .NET runtime was, was sort of all ready to do that because it you know, just-in-time compilation was deeply built into it. So it would, you know, at runtime, fluff up new copies of polymorphic functions as needed um, and sort of cache them. And Andrew and Dom were deeply involved in the exact details of what generics looked like um, and how the runtime worked. In fact, they implemented a lot of the runtime system uh, to do this generic stuff. They pretty much did the first implementations of generics in .NET. So at that stage, there was quite a big and important influence of MSR Cambridge, even though we're very much a, you know, in a 8,000 miles and eight hours away from the mothership, um, on a core Microsoft product. Um, so then Don, who was deeply involved in all this, said, well, why don't we compile Haskell for .NET? It seemed like an obvious thing to do. And there was quite a lot of interest at the time in compiling lots of different languages for .NET. Um, and that is a question I often get asked is, you know, why don't, why doesn't Haskell just run natively on .NET? So, um, but Haskell had, was by then quite mature, right? It had quite a lot of bells and whistles. And it turned out when we looked at it that the the business of compiling Lambda, you know, essentially a Lambda calculus to .NET, not very hard, right? You can, you, um, it may be more or less efficient, but it's not really that difficult to do. So the sort of core of compiling functional programming for um, a uh, bytecode runtime, even with runtime verification, isn't that difficult? What is hard is then when you say, okay, so now we have, uh, you know, several hundred primops we've got to implement. Um, we have to implement, you know, floating point with the right semantics. That's not so hard because floating point semantics is pretty pretty much nailed down. But when it came to concurrency, oh, we want to implement, um, we want to have uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of extremely lightweight threads um, with a uh, scheduler that was, you know, for in GHC's implementation is written in C. So it's not very good to map those onto operating system threads, but operating system threads is really what .NET offered at that stage. And then there was transactional memory, you know, how are we going to map that on? So it went on and on. It turned out to be extremely difficult to map all of what we had. Oh, and then finalizers and, you know, ephemerons and there's lots of stuff that we'd grown that was jolly useful and that the libraries depended on which we'd all have to somehow map onto .NET, and that, that began to seem hard. And then, if you're going to map onto .NET, the purpose of doing so is to um, uh, is so that you can call natively .NET functions, right? So you you want to be able to take a .NET library and import it into Haskell and use it. And the .NET library typically exports classes, and you might want to subclass it and then make instances of that class. That means that your type system has to the type system has to mesh with .NET's type system. 
But .NET doesn't know about higher-kinded polymorphism, for example. So this it all start. I I spent you know years of my life writing. Uh, do you remember HDirect and Green Card? These were all sort of elaborate FFIs that were meant to try to bridge the gap between um, other languages, uh, in particular other runtimes, type systems, and Haskell. It was all quite hard work. It was difficult to do fluidly. So in the end. Don said, I don't think this is worth it. He did actually write a, a sort of the beginning of a Haskell to .NET backend, but he said, I don't think it's worth it. Let's instead write a .NET language, one that is .NET from the ground up, right? That's its goal. Its type system is .NET's type system, but then let's inject all the functional programming ideas and expertise that we can to make it a good language. And that was F-sharp. So, and at the time I thought, oh, well, it'll be a routine functional language and it'll be a good thing to do, um, but not that exciting. But in fact, Don has done all manner of amazing things in F-sharp and experimented in, you know, with workflows and um, what, what to type providers in ways that I never dreamt of. Um, so I think F-sharp has, has innovated in a different space than Haskell's and has sort of demonstrated there are really quite different spaces to innovate in. F-sharp is a very innovative language. Uh, we had, they had, had, they had um, first-class patterns and things way before Haskell did, for example. You said a word that I just have to pick out ephemeron oh yes what is an ephemeron what's an ephemeron so uh, a weak pointer is one which doesn't keep alive the thing that it points to right so garbage collectors you keep usually keep alive everything that is reachable a weak pointer doesn't keep it alive what happens if you dereference a weak pointer usually something predictable happens you get a sort of maybe value back now it turns out that what you really want often is a um is a pair in which the first component points to something Oh, sorry, in which the second component is kept alive as long as the first component is reachable by some other mechanism. So it's like a, a weak pointer to the second that keeps the first alive, um, or, or maybe it was the other way around. Um, so this is actually part of GHC's runtime system, and it's very important in implementing things like memo tables, because if you've got a key value pair in a memo table, um, if the key is alive, you want to keep the value alive, right? But if the key dies, you want the value to die. Right. So, and there's there's really no other way to do it. So, uh, and this was first invented. I forget. Was it? Um, 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 I, I've totally forgotten. In the paper about it, which is called stretching the storage manager, um, we properly credit the person who first um, thought of this and who gave it, who dubbed it ephemerons. Um, but there, I think they may be called weak pairs in GHC. So it's a little known feature of GHC, but fully implemented and works rather well. Yes, I, I had seen weak pair come across. I just never saw ephemeron, but I do like that name. Yeah. So, so in that, in all that work with with .NET and thinking about it, how much thought? I don't. It was sort of unclear from from what you were saying. I, I was there. Was there thought about changing .NET to fit around Haskell? I'm trying to sort of picture this alternate timeline of history where where .NET could accommodate Haskell and where Haskell would be today if it did. Uh, I don't think so. So .NET's sort of main mainstream center of gravity was in the object-oriented programming world. So .NET's type system was closely modeled on, you know, a, a type system for an, for an OO language. So it had, you know, inheritance was important and higher kinds were not, for example. Um, now, and, and moreover, the central gravity of that effort, which involved, you know, dozens or dozens and dozens of very smart people in Redmond, um, who were not 
per se interested in Haskell at all. So the, you know the, there was too much centre of gravity on the OO world to to influence it much. That said, the team was open to one of the, they at a very early stage. They said we'd like to compile lots of languages to .NET so that we can learn ways in which it is you know it is an awkward target and maybe think about changing it. Um, but I don't think changing it in a, is a you know is a, is a as big a way as um, not having inheritance or in having a. <laughs> Um, uh, higher kind of type variables would be, you know, was that was never really on the cards. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like they, they, they wanted a variety of languages to compile to .NET, but not anything as strange as Haskell. Yeah, I mean, it, if you didn't care so much about interoperability, like being able to call other language then then i think you could could compile and also if you didn't care about what they then used to call bytecode verification which you type check the bytecode which means then you have to conform to dotnet type system if you just wanted an execution engine then you perfectly well can compile haskell except for these primops sure so maybe moving forward in time a little bit i i know that you also contributed quite a bit to excel or to the the language design behind excel is that right yeah yeah that's right I think this was very early on while I was at Microsoft. So the, the the opportunity of working for a company, right, in the research lab of a company is, wow, you might find a way to get your work used. I mean, it's all being an academic is you write papers and, you know, they, they uh, make the... <laughs> They've, you've warmed up the planet a bit, but um, nothing much may come of it. Whereas if you work for a company, there's a chance of influencing a product team to do something that will then be directly used by um, millions or hundreds of millions of people. That's quite exciting possibility. Um, and indeed, of course, it's it's a possibility that we were strongly encouraged to you know, exploit, make use of. That's but that's what MSR. Um, was partly about. Um, so early on, I thought, well, what's a functional programmer to um, can, can can what can we contribute to Microsoft? So one is to talk to the people who are developing runtimes. We've been talking about that, um, and the you know dev div, the developer division who are you know building programming language implementations. That's sort of one vector. But I was soon realised that um, Excel is definitely another because Excel is as lots of people have pointed out, the world's most widely used functional programming language. And what I like about it is there's no apology for it being functional, right? If you try to teach an imperative programmer how to write Haskell, they say, but how do I, you know, print this? And you say, oh, you know, monads, mumble, mumble, right? But, but in Excel, nobody asks that question. It just doesn't make sense. Of course, it's functional. That's all it can be. Um, so, uh, so, then if you look at Excel, you think, well, uh, okay, so it's a, it is a functional language. It's a pure functional language, um, but it's a terribly weak one. Um, so I thought maybe if I talked to the Excel folk, um, we could uh, um, uh, do some quite simple things to Excel that make it dramatic, dramatically more powerful. Um, we could, um, for example, in Excel, you can't define new functions. Uh, you've got the 600 built-in ones, but you know, out of luck if you want to define a new one. And yet it's, it's obvious that, you know, to to us as programming languages people, you, if you've got a worksheet and you've defined you know, some cells are the inputs and one cell is the output, well, that defines a function. You just got to make it reusable, give it a name, um, establish its calling semantics. And similarly, Excel works with flat scalar data structure almost exclusively. Um, and being able, but you can't imagine writing a functional program if the only things you had to work with were ints and floats, right? It just doesn't bear thinking about, right? You need lists and data structures, trees and so forth. So we wanted to, uh, you know, the, the, those are sort of two, you know, major, major things that would dramatically change what you could do with Excel. Well, so I would then went to talk to the Excel folk and they, to their credit, were very welcoming, right? They didn't say, you know, go away, we're busy. Um, uh, I would sort of um, eulogize about all of this and say, they would say very, very interesting. Let's, and we worked out quite a few details. Um, even in Margaret Burnett, the wonderful Margaret Burnett from um, Corvallis University of, not, uh, 
Oregon State University, came to on sabbatical, and we wrote we wrote a paper or two about this with Alan Blackwell at the computer lab. Um, uh, and the wonderful thing about Margaret is she cares about end-user programming, which I know nothing about, really. By end-users, I mean people who aren't really programmers at all. They're business analysts or, or scientists. They just want to get the job done. So, um, And they're the sort of people who use Excel. And she knows all about end-user programming. So um, wrote these papers, talked to the Excel folk, and but but it was slow going. But while they were receptive, they were on a kind of three-year cycle. Um, so... Uh, Every um, every uh, every three years, Microsoft would produce a new version of Excel. It was sort of came in a box, shrink wrapped, um, and uh, so there was a sort of cycle to the way the program managers would think about it. They would be in um, uh, after they shipped a version, they would then be sort of receptive to new ideas for about six months, and then they would. Um, for they'd spend about six months deciding what not to do and designing in detail things they were going to do. Then they'd spend two years executing, in which they were not receptive at all, and then the, the cycle would repeat. So what would tend to happen is uh, during the receptive period, they'd be all, you know, yes, this sounds great. And then, you know, six months later, there'd be a sad email that says, actually, Simon, really sorry, but we didn't can't fit it in this version. You know, there's too much else to do. Um, and uh, and I'm I, I'm not critical of that, right? There's a They have a whole different collection of criteria. And so maybe they're absolutely right from a business point of view about what to do. But it was, it was sort of after about the fourth iteration of this, I thought, okay, so <laughs> this isn't really working. I'll stop for a bit. Um, but but that was it was definitely a very explicit mission to transform what you could do with Excel by lifting the glass ceiling that's imposed, in my view, somewhat unnecessarily by the you know by the sort of an accident of history, as it were, the way because nobody thought of Excel as a programming language, at least not when they're initially building it. But but that ceiling did get list, lifted in the end. I mean, there there are definable functions in Excel now, aren't there? Oh, yes. Yes. So that was, so what happened was then, then I went, uh, I went sort of went away for about you know, eight years, I think, uh, really quite a long time. Um, I stopped pushing on the Excel folk. And then my lab director, who was then Andrew Blake, said, Simon, I, as part of my annual performance review, I think, so he said, you should really go back and talk to the Excel folk. And I said, no, no, you know, they're, they're too busy and it'll never happen. But he said, you should, you should try. And I went back and, and what I found was that one of the program managers who I'd been speaking to earlier um, and who was, you know, he wasn't the most junior, but he wasn't senior at that time. And he liked this stuff and had been very friendly and encouraging to me. He'd got promoted. He was now the boss of Excel. So um, Dave Gaynor was now my, and I went to talk to him and he said, oh, yes, Simon, we should so do this. Um, so it was, that was one, one change was that um, I was now speaking to somebody senior and influential who, who, who got it, as it were. And a second change that was quite influential is that Microsoft had by then moved towards software as a service. So instead of this three-year cycle, they would deliver new versions of Excel every three months. Now, you might think that would shrink this entire cycle so that it was, you know, a mad, madcap three-month cycle, you know, of um, receptive for three days. and then. <laughs> but, of course, you can't do that. So what you have is you have rolling plans, some of which will, you know, have a timescale of a year, year or so, some of which have a much, my, my, my much, much longer timescale. But there isn't this sort of sharp cutoff that if it doesn't fit in the next three years, we're just not going to think about it at all. So, in fact, the timescales, the, the time horizons lengthened rather than shortening with this move to three monthly releases. That was a very interesting and surprising consequence to me. So the combination of these two is that Dave, Dave was able to say, say, well, I think I think there is something in this um, idea of adding 
end user defined named functions and rich, you know, nested compositional data structures to Excel. Um, the uh, um, and that led to a very fruitful dialogue with the Excel folk that has indeed led to first, firstly, so-called dynamic arrays, which are the first step towards these fully compositional nested data structures. And secondly, lambdas. And it is the, the first thing that got released was not the sheet defined functions that I had in mind um, originally. It was pure lambda in the, you know, Alonzo Church sense. <laughs> it was strange, sort of the super geeky one because it, because it doesn't have much UI implication really you know it's just you you could say it's quotes just another formula it <laughs> equals lambda x blah 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 right and away you go with, with but but we made sure it's full lambda calculus right you know free variables and closures the whole bit it implements the proper semantics you can do church numerals and everything in excel these days um so that was really very exciting and it's still happening you know there's a there's a it'll take another few years to reach anything like its full fruition but i think it's you know, there, there's a there's a long-term movement there, and I'm very excited about that because I think I, I feel as if that's one one thing that um, that I've managed to achieve by being at Microsoft that you know actually might not have happened had I never joined Microsoft. So that's pretty exciting. Can you think of other examples of that? Oh, influences on Microsoft. Yeah. Um, that that I've had. Um, not really. I think that's the big one, really. Um, you know, I've had I've had you know interactions with lots of other. People like there's a there's this amazing language called MDX, which is a query language. So uh, MDX is to um, uh, data cubes, the kind of things you find in data warehouses, as SQL is to a relational database. It's the query language for a particular kind of database, the kind of database in which you have multiple dimensions. You say I've got, um, you know, I've got product. Uh, uh, you, you say I've, uh, each record says, well, I sold this product to this person at this time in this place. But the product is, uh, you know, it, it's a hierarchical axis that says, well, it's, uh, you know, this particular kind of bread, which is in the category bread, which is in the category food, which is in the category, you know, goods that you can buy. And the place could be, it was in this particular shop, which was in this particular town, which was in this particular state, which is in the particular country. So all of the axes on which, which you might measure things are, are hierarchical. And then you might want to say, show me, you know, the sales um, in this period, um, you know, subdivided by state, but aggregated up to the state level um, and filtered in this kind of way. So um, an MDX is a rather rather clever query language about this. This is astonishingly unknown outside sort of enterprise computing circles. Um, and I, at one stage, I wanted to, you know, maybe we should write some popple papers about it, but I never, never got to that. You, you, can, you can get books, practitioner books about MDX. Um, but not on that. And then, so I was involved in thinking it could be formalized MDX. I wrote a semantics for MDX, um, but it, that, as it turned out, never went anywhere. Um, and um, and then there were, you know, so I had lots of, lots of good interactions with other bits of Microsoft, but nothing of this enduring, actually having an impact nature that happened with Excel. I know that um, that that Excel, one of the, in other conversations, we've talked about how, how Excel could be a good route to education. Because it's something that a lot of people are exposed to, and now and now it's this it's this functional language. So, so mm. I'm going to use that as a segue to talk about your mm -hmm. education work. So I know for the past several years you've been hard at work trying to increase access to computer science education in England um, uh, through computing at schools. So I'd love to hear more about that and and sort of how that project developed and, and grew. Mm. So it's the past 
15 years now, actually. Wow, it's been that long. Um, it has been that long. So for me, it started when I was sitting around our, our table at um, dinner time, trying to get my children to tell me what they were doing at school. You know, what you know as you do, what did you do at school? They go, hmm, uh, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> and then after applying some thumb screws, you can get some more information. But um, uh, but then when I asked about uh, computing, which was then called ICT, um, Information and Communication Technology, they were uh, my children were kind of openly contemptuous about it. Um, it turned out that mainly it was a, they were being taught about how to use Microsoft Office. Um, they were taught not and 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 not ridiculously right there was sort of it was you know you're trying to do a powerpoint presentation and then you sort of think how to do it and then you might want to think what could be better about it and improve it um but somehow it came over very badly right i remember vividly my daughter saying well i've got i've got my powerpoint presentation and what i've done is i've degraded it in various ways by making spelling mistakes and you know silly underlining in the wrong place so that i can produce something that i can then say i've improved it in the following ways and i thought no this is not what education should be like right <laughs> And as I talked to them, I couldn't make a, a decent connection between the subject that I thought was so, you know, intellectually rich and interesting and fascinating that I devoted my professional life to it, on the one hand, and the subject that they were doing at school, on the other. Was I felt if I was a biologist, I would be able to make such a connection. It would be recognisably the same subject. Um, so uh, I talked to other people about this, and they all seemed to be equally dissatisfied. Um, but they all said, well, but what can you do? Right? The education system seems very big and monolithic and hard to change. And it is. So it has a tremendous mass and it doesn't doesn't move easily. So um, uh, but in the in the end, uh, with very helpful encouragement from my then lab director, um, who's called Andrew Herbert, we started the computing at school working group. So this was a kind of guerrilla movement. And um, I think had Andrew not encouraged me to do it, I probably wouldn't have. Um, so he didn't do a lot but as my lab director he said this is a good thing to do Simon you should do it and and you know we had conversations about it he was you know so he wasn't just supportive in giving me resources or time he was he was you know we actually had dialogue about it that made me feel sort of propped up and able to do it so we found a computing school with four people it was me and Simon Humphreys who was a teacher at a nearby school and Kevin Bond and Sylvia Langfield who both worked for um, an awarding organization that, that's the 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 organizations in this country who set high stakes examinations so four of us started compu started computing at school I kept the membership on a, a spreadsheet um, initially and we just we were just volunteers right there was no we had no corporate sponsor no, certainly no government sponsor no respectability it was very much a bottom-up movement but it wasn't long before we started meeting, you know, at Microsoft Research. Um, you know, we'd meet every couple of months and figure out, you know, what do we want to do about it? We figured the first thing we should do is to say what we thought computing as a school subject should be like. Um, and we ended up thinking the thing that we want to do is to treat it like we treat natural science and mathematics and history and geography. That is as a subject discipline rather than as an instrumental um an instrumental subject that you do, you know, to get you a good job or because you need to use a word processor. Um, so thinking of it as a foundational subject discipline was the key thing. So we then thought, well, what is that subject discipline? Well, it's computer science, right? For, and so we wrote a curriculum for computer science. That was our first major output. Um, the CAS curriculum for computer science, we produced in about 2009. Um, so, and this was really the first time, I don't, I don't think, well, probably other people were feeling in the same direction, but as, for us, it was the first to, to write down what computer science as a school subject might look like at school, at school, not at university. But at that stage, computer science was very much seen as a university specialization subject. 
right, that you might get to at university, but you know, it wasn't really relevant at school at all. So um, then, um, then what happened? Then we got lucky because the Secretary of State for Education, that, who was then Michael Gove, um, instituted a review of the whole national curriculum. Um, and that meant that all the national curriculum was kind of up for grabs. Um, and so the fact that we had a good idea about what to do about ICT was very helpful because um, you know, the Department of Education really didn't at that stage. So there was a tremendous amount of paddling under the water and very, you know, zillion things happening that I could tell you about in, in more detail. Um, a big one, for example, was the Royal Society's report, Shutdown or Restart, which came out in about 2012, but was extremely influential because it... Um, People, particularly governments, feel able to listen to the Royal Society, which has been around for 400 years, in a way that they don't feel able to listen to a guerrilla group like computing at school. Um, so, uh, but so in the end, the um, uh, this new vision of computing as a foundational subject came to be enshrined in the national curriculum that emerged from the review of the national curriculum. So it was published in 2012, came into force 2014. And, and and so this is really now affecting the education of English school children. Yes, it is. Yes, the national curriculum is something that all all um, state-maintained schools are obliged to follow, except for some strange reason in this country, for academies which are state-funded, but with have a greater degree of independence, including over the, their curriculum. But in practice, um, the national curriculum is normative. That is, it says what, you know, what, what's expected? If, if you're going to deviate from it, you need to explain why and how and why it's going to be better for your children to do that. So it has a powerful normative effect. Uh, it's very short. It's only two sides of A4. Um, in the end, I got invited to, to chair the committee that wrote it. And the, the my spec from the Department of Education was, you can say what you like, Simon, but it has to fit on two sides of A4. Um, and this is a national curriculum for ages 6 through to 16. So it focuses the mind wonderfully when you think you only have two sides of A4. What is really important about your subject discipline that you're going to set it down in these you know, precious two pages? Um, but having said that, then from 2014, these schools were kind of obliged to follow the national curriculum. But actually, it's hard for them to do that because we were, in effect, establishing an entirely new subject at school level, right, called computer science. Schools, you know, had never taught it before. Teachers were not qualified in it. There was no, um, you know, there was no schemes of work. There were no um, lesson plans. Uh, the subject knowledge uh, among teachers was weak because, well, um, uh, you know, a computer, a, a computer science graduate would typically not become a teacher because they couldn't teach their subject, right? They'd be stuck teaching ICT. There were some, but few. Then there was a sort of extended hiatus in which schools were wondering what to do. And computing at school, which was now quite big, you know, computer school now had, oh, I don't know, tens of thousands of members, a couple of, couple of tens of thousands of members by then, um, did its best to be support, you know, to essentially support teachers and schools in doing this remarkable um, pivot. Uh, and we did get some government support for that. The government gave us about a million pounds a year, um, in effect, to do that. And that's enormously much more than zero. We did a lot with that money. Um, but it's still, if you divide it between 20,000 schools, it's only £50 a school, so you can see that it's not very much. And then the Royal Society published another report, five years on from the first, called After the Reboot. Um, and it was essentially a state-of-the-nation report about how's the new computing curriculum going in practice. And the answer was patchy, but fragile. Um, you know, patches of excellence, right, but as a whole, fragile. And um, so there were lots of good things to celebrate, but not universal, that is not covering the whole country. And even where it was covering, it wasn't deeply rooted. 
Um, so that in turn led to the government saying, OK, we'll give you um, £80 million a year over, f no, sorry, £20 million a year over four years. It was an £80 million programme to run something that was called the National Centre for Computing Education. Um, and this is a uh, t this is the very opposite to CAS. CAS is a bottom-up guerrilla movement driven by volunteers. The National Centre for Computing Education is a top-down um, government-funded, government-procured exercise in professional development for computing teachers. So its goal is to support and equip teachers and schools to be in a position to do to give an amazing story about a computing curriculum from age six through to age eighteen, actually. So. Um, and I have the the honour to serve as the NCC's um, non-executive chair, um, so I'm still quite connected with all this. So you mentioned two key steps made by the Royal Society in there. Um, you are in the Royal Society, I believe. Um, and so, so did you also have a hand to play on on, on that side? Uh, I am indeed a fellow of the Royal Society. It is probably the single um, you know honour that I'm most proud to hold because it. Because it is this very ancient society. It's not. It's not a computer science thing. It's a whole science, engineering, math, so well, science and mathematics is the Royal Society scope, including computer science. Um, and uh, you know, it started with Isaac Newton. So when you when you become a fellow, you get to sign this book, and in the very same book, earlier. You know, on an earlier page is Isaac Newton's signature, and you have to sign it. So you've got to be careful not to blot the blot the page. <laughs> it's scary. Um, so I'm deeply proud and um, uh, fortunate, I think, lucky to have been elected a fellow of the Royal Society. But the and the Royal Society is a trusted advisor of government. That's a very helpful thing that the Royal Society does, among many other things. Um, the 2012 report, I was on the panel that wrote the report, but I wasn't the fellow at that stage. For shutdown and restart, by that, I that time I'd become a fellow, so I was on the panel for that as well, yes. So I was involved in authoring both of those reports, yeah. So one, one, one thing to sort of tie, tie a number of these strands together is the importance of meeting people and, and mixing ideas in that, in that all of these projects that, that have developed that you've described seem to sort of arise out of relationships with other people. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I mean, it must be true about um, pretty much um, everyone, I think. And uh, yeah. that's why I often think that, um, you know, when, when things work out, it's, it's a, you know, as much by luck as good judgment. It's sort of who you happen to have met or happen to have talked to or struck, uh, struck up a good acquaintanceship with or, you know, sparks flew. It's, um, I think we, you know, it's where we're here. Um, we're here through good fortune and, um, uh uh, it's not. It's like when I, I think when we think about um, companies as well. You think, well, we see, you know, we see Bill Gates or Larry Ellison, and think, well, they've, you know, they they were successful entrepreneurs. But actually, for every one of those, we we see them. We see their, you know, part tragic trajectory of success. We don't see the other um, thousand startups that simply, you know, died after six months or a year. Right? So there's a there's a pronounced stage effect. So they were undoubtedly smart and able people, but they were also lucky. Right. You know, Bill Gates happened to be around when IBM needed an operating system and happened to know the right person or be in the right room. And you know, it was just, you know, these, uh, you can't plan for that. During during this work, this, this education work, Microsoft continued to support your time and 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 efforts toward this, right? I mean, that's that you you did that on the clock. That wasn't just a volunteer effort. No, in your spirit it, it was it was entirely on the clock. So I consider it an enormous privilege and 
act, generous act actually by um, Microsoft Research Cambridge and by you know my successive lab directors to allow me to spend you know around I, I suppose it was probably you know of the order of a day a week probably at times a bit more um, on education despite the fact they weren't getting any very direct benefit not even very direct reputational benefit out of it I thought it was extremely generous and I felt very supported by the um, company in allowing me to do that that's that's fantastic um any hints about what's next I, I i i saw in your in your post that you're you're remaining committed to to spending time both on education and and on haskell and ghc and all of that but my understanding is you're you're looking for new opportunities any any anything that you're willing to share about that Yes, I am. I think it, uh, you ask me again in a month. You know, I'll, okay. I think things will be um, uh, in better focus then. Hey, this is Roman from the future. So we recorded this episode after Simon had announced he was leaving Microsoft Research, but before he was certain about his future plans. But here in the future, we do know that Simon is joining Epic Games to work on their programming language called Verse. If you want to learn more about this, we'll put a link to Simon's announcement in the show notes. Okay, Simon, sorry for interrupting you. Please go on. Um, in some ways, I think that the the opportunity of um, looking around for something new uh, is you know, an opportunity to completely reinvent oneself. Um, and I know many people who have, and I'm enormously admiring of their ability to reinvent themselves. But in the end, I've decided not to completely reinvent myself. I would like to continue to do um, you know, of the order of a day a week on education stuff because I'm sort of in this position in which I've... Um, um, I think I can be, you know, modestly influential in a good way without it having to take over my whole life. But I don't want to become full-time education person. Um, I feel GHC and um, Haskell generally, I think, is in a fairly good state. And um, as in, I think if I was run over by a bus, everything would go on fine. You know? <laughs> the Cambridge bus error problem has been solved pretty much. <laughs> At one time, it was, you know, Simon Marlowe and I were both in Cambridge. So if there was a particularly vigorous bus, you could have really knocked a big hole in Askell. Um, so, uh, but at the same time, I, I don't really want to set Haskell and GHC aside at all. I feel very personally committed to it. Um, um, both of them are sort of very much my, my baby. So I want to continue to spend a significant amount of time with that. But I'd also like to start something new. Um, I don't quite know exactly what new. Um, I guess that will be part of what I'll, I'll uh, be able to tell you in a month or so's time. But something that is uh, different, preferably as different as possible from what I've done before. Um, that's my goal is to sort of take the opportunity to jerk myself out of a rut. And since I've not, you know, I've, I've decided I want to jerk myself into a completely different rut, I'm going to find it, try to find a little bit that's different. Well, that sounds very exciting. I'm really curious to see how that all pans out. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Um, any any closing remarks? Any any sort of um, thoughts that you want us to share that we didn't cover? Oh, you um you mentioned about ex ex you you segued from Excel to education by saying maybe you could teach children programming using Excel, um, and that is something I, I think would be worth worth a try. When 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 Excel gets to the point where it has you know better uh, facilities for defining functions and um, and has more compositional data structures, then um, in, in some ways, the um, teaching children to program using Excel would bring together three bits, different bits of my life rather beautifully, right? Education, functional programming, and um, Microsoft. Uh, so that would be a very 
lovely sort of apotheosis, as it were. But I'm cautious about being overly confident that that is the right way to teach children to program. One, one thing, if I'd learned anything about education, it's that education is complicated and nobody knows all the answers. So I think you'd want to do some careful experimentation to see, do children learn learn to program better You know, you, you, um, using uh, Scratch first and then Excel or Excel first and then Scratch or both at the same time or uh, textual language or, or, or what? That's, you know, these, are, these are not simple questions um, to answer. So, but I would, I would love to see some serious computing education research work done on um, if we did a functional first story about teaching children to program uh, what you know how would how would outcomes differ uh, what differently would the uh, what would they learn differently how would it affect their futures um, could they pick up uh, you know maybe you can Picking up functional programming, if you know imperative programming, is in some ways quite hard. Uh, maybe the reverse is easier. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I would love to see um, people try that. Um, and I'd love also to uh, exploit the symbiosis between maths and computing as well. That's one of the things that happens in functional programming, is that functional programming and mathematics are really very close. I mean, computer science and mathematics are pretty close. I like to say that computer science is mathematics made incarnate. Right, made made flesh, made executable, made testable, made runnable. Um, so that I'd love to think about how to teach mathematics, where the goal is to get a maths concept uh, across, but to teach it sort of illustrated by or brought to life by computing, by perhaps writing bits of code, and vice versa. Right? Perhaps we could um, enliven our sort of computing education with with maths. Perhaps we could even think of them as sort of symbiotic and not teach maths and computing as separate subjects at all, at least in the early stages. Um, that's a pretty ambitious agenda, but I think there's, I feel as if there's something there. For my part, I definitely agree with that. Um, I taught math in school in a, in a, in a previous life, and, and I very much wanted to combine that with, with the computer science that I knew. Yeah. I mean, some people have been trying things like this, like the Bootstrap Project. I'm sure I'm Krishnamurthy and his, and his oh, yes. colleagues been, uh, you know, have whole big units of work in which their main goal is to teach maths or physics, but it's very much through the through a computational lens. And um, Chris Smith um, and his uh, Code World uh, stuff is using Haskell, but, but he, Haskell to teach maths again. Um, so I think there are, you know, there's some non-trivial experiments in this area, but I'd like to, but I think Excel would be an easier starting point, a much easier starting point because they're going to, they're going to, well, partly because all schools know they want to teach children Excel anyway, but it's just jolly useful. Um, and also because it's, it's got this very low barrier to entry for starting to write formulae. Yes. Yes, it does. Well, thanks very much. This has been very interesting. Really appreciate your time, uh, today, Simon. And, um, uh, thanks for listening to, to our audience. It's been a pleasure. Great. Good. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. 